Our scripture reading today will be verses 13 through 24 in Psalm 139. If you're using the Black Pew Bible that's either near you or in front of you, uh, you'll find today's passage on page 522. Once again, that's Psalm uh, 139 beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. These words we have just read are both comforting and convicting for they are once again a reminder that you know every intimate detail of our lives you know us before we were born you're with us in times of joy and in times of sorrow you know us when we've walked close to you and when we've sinned against you and yet because of your unending mercy we while we were still sinners, Christ died and shed his blood for us to save us. And we rejoice in that. We now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to preach that you would fill him with your spirit. You would give him the words to speak with power and conviction. I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive those words. To both challenge and change us to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Just yesterday morning, um, I got to meet with our missions team, and uh, we talked a great deal about our missions conference coming up in uh, September. Um, uh, Dr. George Martin from Southern, he's a a missions uh, professor there, will be here to speak, as well as Brad Merchant, who's the pastor of missions up at uh, College Park. And uh, it's all about the fact that God's plan for the world centers on the local church, that this is how God centers the advancing of His kingdom, is through the work, uh, whether we advance the kingdom where we are or where we're not. And these six folks are working hard 
to put together a, uh, a missions conference that will bless you. And so I just wanted to, ahead of time, say thank you to them because they were on my mind even this morning. Uh, that's Marge Millman and Artist Toll and Gary and Mary Jane Strange and Dave Burks and Jim Schweikert. Uh, they, are, they are all working hard for that. Uh, and so there's so many things that happen behind the scenes. If we were to bring them all in front of the scenes, uh, we might spend all our time just saying that. But it is a wonderful thing when you just spy out something happening uh, that, that is, is truly a blessing, whether it's the work of, of deacons, whether it's one family taking care of another, um, even the way that, uh, uh, that us, so many are coming around the stookies in this time of, of need is... It's just glorious. It's what a family should be. It's why we love this family. It's why I love this family, because we seek to be the family that God has made us in Christ. And uh, quite frankly, if you're not participating in that, I have no place to, to guilt you about it. I'll just say you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings of church life that exists, which is taking care of others and in turn being taken care of. And quite frankly, taking care of others is enough that if nobody ever takes care of me, I've got enough joy to last. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, where you see needs, don't wait for a sign-up sheet. Just step right in and do it. Just put your arm around somebody and walk with them. Build, build relationships, all of those things. I hope you'll do that. This week is our third week in Psalm 139, the last time we'll be here. It's part of our larger series called Our God Is, thinking about uh, some select, awe-inspiring attributes of God. And you'll probably recall that this is a song. These are song lyrics we have here in front of us in Psalm 139. And David has already talked about God's omniscience, that God is all-knowing. His omnipresence, that God is fully present everywhere. Uh, and now we come to this truth in these verses, particularly in verses 13 to 18, though we'll think about the whole rest of the psalm, that our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That's what that means, right? When, when you take some medicine and it, it's overwhelming, you know, the doctor may talk about the potency of the medication that he or she puts you on. is talking about the power of that medicine to do what it's designed to do. I'm going to put this down because I can't look you in the eyes, Judy, unless I have that down. So I just, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but omnipotent means all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Our God has the capacity to do absolutely anything that He deems fit to do. Psalm 135 says it this way, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And the power of God as you read through the Scripture is striking. This is the power that created all things out of nothing by the power of His Word. This is the power that upholds all things. His is the power that keeps the earth on its axis that tells the oceans, you can come this far, but that's it. That commands the sun to rise and to set. That makes sure the stars are in place so that none of them are missing. His is the power that commands the thunder and the lightning and the rain and the snow. His is the power that establishes nations and gives leaders authority and 
removes that authority from them so that the Bible says that he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root when he blows on them and they wither. Like a child blowing a dandelion and all the stem just going... That is how easily the greatest powers in the earth, in the world, are removed by the power of God. Just a little, and that's it. Then in the life of ministry of Jesus, it's the power that calms storms and expels demons and heals disease and gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and life to the dead. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So that Jeremiah cries out, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. God is omnipotent. That comes to matters of salvation too, doesn't it? Some, in fact, believe that they are so far gone, so sinful, so entrenched in their ways, so entrenched in their thinking, in their atheism, in their agnosticism, in their questioning, so entrenched in their lives that they are, in fact, beyond God's help. They've just been in this pattern of thinking too long for anything to really be done about it. They're beyond God's help. But the Bible says that they're not. It's interesting, in the book of Matthew, after Jesus says that it's easier for a rich person to go, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven, his disciples are taken back and say, well, who then can be saved? In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Friend, that statement about the power of God is as true for you and for, as it is for all of us because none of us has the power to save ourselves. The Bible's very helpful here, isn't it, to describe us as dead? When is it the last time we saw a dead anything accomplish anything? We can do nothing. But God sent the Lord Jesus Christ and who humbled himself, took on the form of a servant died, was obedient to death, even death on the cross for us, taking our punishment so we'd be forgiven. And he was raised on the third day, demonstrating in part his omnipotence, his power over sin, over death, over hell. And that power will save every person who turns to him by faith. Listen carefully. You are not beyond God's ability to save. You are not. Why? Because our God is omnipotent. He has absolute power to do whatever it is that He deems right. Now, when we come to this psalm, you will remember that David's focus has not been theoretical. He hasn't just been waxing eloquent about these attributes of God. 
It's been personal. So that God isn't just omniscient in David's eyes. God fully knows me. God isn't simply omnipresent. God is always with me. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And the same is true about God's omnipotence, because God's omnipotence has shaped and upholds and carries me. That's what he says. So here we actually see that God's absolute power affects, affects absolutely all of life. God's absolute power affects absolutely all of life. So first, what I want us to see is God's power over David's life. This we see in verses 13 to 16. And as we do it, we see that, that God's power over David's life is from beginning to end. All right? So it's from the beginning. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So in the darkness of the womb, in this hidden place, in a place he calls secret, that he likens to the depths of the earth, there, before David's mother even knew she was pregnant, God was at work, knitting David together. Now, I don't know if you knit. Maybe you've been around someone who has. And you sit there and you chat for an hour, and this pile of yarn, which is basically good for nothing except making a lasso and trying to catch somebody else, turns into a blanket or a scarf or a winter hat. And it's amazing. It's so creative. I mean, you look at those things, I think, how do you do that? How do you knit that together? I, you give me those same two needles, all I can do is drum out a nice beat for you. I can't actually do anything with the yarn. You could tie one needle to the other needle if you're a child and just swing it around, right? And start, it becomes nunchucks. You could do that with it. But you, I can't do that. But how much more awe-inspiring. That's what that fearful in verse 14 means, by the way. Fearfully means it, it's awe-inspiring. How much more awe-inspiring and wonderful and extraordinary and marvelous and beyond us, really, is it that God has knit us together. That God takes the simple egg that He created and the sperm to fertilize it, which He created, and over the course of nine months, He knits it into something like 60 trillion cells, a hundred thousand uh, miles of nerve fiber, 60,000 miles of vessels to carry blood here, there, and yonder. 250 bones. By the way, that word frame in verse 15, my frame was not hidden for you. It literally is bones. My bones weren't hidden from you. To do all of this. He says in verse 15, it, yes, verse 15, that he was intricately woven 
This is a Hebrew verb that, that, it, that speaks of embroidering. It's the same word that's used in the instructions given for the curtains in the tabernacle, that there was to be embroidery, and what that embroidery brought was more interest, more beauty, unique design to these curtains. And we could talk all morning about that within our own bodies and the incredible capacity for any number of things that the body has. But it's not just our body. In verse 13, you formed my inward parts. Now, we shouldn't take this literally, though God did, in fact, I mean, the, the, the literal word here, inward parts, means kidneys. Uh, God did, in fact, form the kidneys. But usually this word in the Psalms in particular speaks of the heart or the mind. It speaks of the inner person, the core of who we are, our soul even. So God didn't just form our bodies, create our bodies, knit that together. He also formed our inward parts. Our soul and our bodies exist because of the will of God and the power of God. Now, so that means you, not just me. It's not just certain people, right? You understand this. It's not just certain persons were made this way. Every single human being made this way. Knit together by God. Formed by God. And so there are a couple of very helpful applications for this. One is that we should humbly glorify God with the talents we have. People talk about their talents. They, they say that they're blessed. You know, well, that's just a gift. You know, da, 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 da. But we can often take very much pride in what we can do, can't, don't we? And yet the reality, I mean, some of you have incredible artistic ability. Some of us have athletic ability. I mean, not me, but maybe some of you do. We have musical talent or we have intellectual capacity in one subject or another. Maybe you're particularly good with language. You are able to teach or cook or maybe you can knit. Maybe you have a gift for writing or design. Maybe you, can, you have the capacity to understand and fix engines or program computers. Or I mean, the, the list can just go on and on. But whatever it is that you're good at, it is a gift from God that you have that capacity, that you have that ability, that you have that talent. And you may use your gift in part to make a living, and that's wonderful, but are, are we intentionally using those things that God has given us for His glory and for the good of others? Do you serve others with your gifts? That's one way that we ought to think about this, that, that whatever it is that I'm good at is not meant simply for me to enjoy. It's meant to honor the Lord, and it's meant to edify others. The second thing that probably screams right off the text in our particular cultural context is that we should courageously stand for life. From the beginning. From the womb. Now, as I get into these waters, I understand that it's possible that some of you may actually have experience with something like abortion because you or a friend or a family member have made that choice in the past. And even as we want to understand what is true about this, 
you need to know that there is grace for you. That action has not taken you beyond God's power to save you and to change you. There is grace for your friend. There is grace for your family member. None of that grace means that it was okay. What that grace means is that what's been broken through our choices can be restored and forgiven. And to be clear, I mean, we really have to be honest when we come to the Bible, right? David's not sitting down saying, oh, well, I'm going to write something that's going to fly in the face of abortion. He's not doing that. This kind of thing did not exist in David's day. The kind of thing that we see, so pervasive, is not in David's mind. And yet, his words obviously speak to the issue. And part of what we ought to understand is that God's power and lordship over life does not begin at birth. God's power and lordship over life begins when He creates it. Before He creates it. It begins in the womb. And that's relevant to us today because, friends... What you won't find as you talk to your friends about this is that the real question is, when does life begin? That's no longer the question. The question is not so much about when does life begin. The question is, who has the power and the right to exert power over the life in the womb? That is the question that is more in the forefront of the discussion on abortion. And so beyond the fact that since that is a human being in the womb, then abortion is not simply an action. It is murder. Beyond that, the taking of a preborn life is to shake one's fist in the face of the power and authority and purposes of God over that life. And so really it is sinful on multiple levels. So that no matter how God began knitting that baby in the womb, whether those circumstances were pleasant or painful, no matter how the baby develops in the womb, it is wicked to believe that I have the right to exert power over a life that God has created. And I know that sits heavy, but it needs to ring true. Our power didn't give life to the baby, and so our power shouldn't take the life of the baby. Now, how that will work itself out in your life and in mine, this courageous stand for life, will likely look differently from one person to another. But no matter what form it takes, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be indifferent about life in the womb. And friends, I say this, I say this with fear and trembling. So I'm going to fear and I'm going to tremble and I'm going to say it. I have a deep conviction that one cannot honor the Lord and support those who promote the murder of babies in the womb. 
Now, it actually doesn't matter what the tax policies of that person may be, the health care policies of that person, the immigration policies of that person, because do you know who will never gain the benefits of any of those other policies? The one who is never permitted to live. And so you may find great benefit in a number of other things in a person who may be chosen to lead in one realm or another. But if, if, if God condemns an action, I cannot support one who promotes such an action. This is what Romans 1 means, doesn't it? That not only do you do it, you basically support those who do. We can do neither and be faithful. So God's power over David's life and over our lives and over every life is from the beginning. But it's also to the end. It doesn't stop there. You look at verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God's power hasn't just knit David together and gotten him out of the womb. God's power is exerted over every day of his life. So, you just want to keep on with that application, that last application. Let me tell you, I have said this on a number of baby recognition, dedication, whatever you want to call what we do, that I've said it on a number of those Sundays, that we as believers cannot simply be pro-life in the, sim- in the sense of simply seeking to make sure that babies are born. We must be pro-life in the sense that we will support and act in a way to help babies live and to be educated and to be raised and, and to have families. This is why I, I, just, I look back over almost 10 years here and I look across this room and I look at those who are with us and they're no longer with us. Uh, some are somewhere else in this city and some are in a different country. And I think about the ways that God has stirred new desires to be pro-life in the form of uh, foster care and adoption and all of the support that came around those who were actually walking through that process. And it's wonderful because God's power doesn't just matter in the womb. God's power and purposes matter outside the womb as well. So, David says, every one of them It's not just some of his days are written in God's book. It's not like God's just keeping record of the good stuff. God's only written good stuff, but I write write when things are hard. I mean, he says every single day of his life is written in God's book. Now just think about David's life for a moment and think about what that means. That means the day he defeated Goliath is in God's book. And the day he was defeated by lust is in his book. The day that he spares Saul's life is in that book. And the day he takes Uriah's life is in that book. The day that Samuel anoints him to be king is in that book. The day that Nathan rebukes him 
for his unkingly and ungodly character is also in that book. The day his son dies in infancy is in that book. And the day another son is crowned king is also in that book. Every day is there, good or bad, holy or sinful. And the Bible teaches us that God works it all together for His glory and for our good. And so he says, every one of them, that the, the, the days were formed for me. They were formed. And, and it's the same word used in Genesis 2 when it says that God formed the man from the dust of the earth. So in the same way that God carefully and purposefully formed man, He has formed David's days. That's what the Hebrew word actually means. It doesn't just, it speaks to the act of creating, but it also speaks to the purposes of creating. And when did those purposes come into being? Well, He says, when as yet there was none of them. Long before any day in the womb began, the days had been written for Him. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, let me tell you, this is incredibly good news for you. This is overwhelmingly good news that every single day in your life is written in God's book. You may have days in your life that you kind of wish you could rip out of the book of your life. Days you wish you could erase. You may be in a place now that you'd really take this story in a different direction than it's going right now. You'd have yourself married by now, or you'd be having children by now, or you'd be in a better place in your career, or your marriage, or your health, or your struggle against sin. But we can rest in this, that every single day has been written in God's book, and He has purposes for even the darkest days in that book. Purposes for His glory and for our good. Do you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't say, hey, hey, this is what's coming on the next page. I mean, some days you wake up and the page turns and what is written on that page is not what you expected to be written on that page. Everything was going well. And then the page turns. God doesn't guarantee what's on the next page, but we know that this day is on purpose and we know that at the end of our days is eternal life. You see, our hope has to lie there. Not what's on the next page, but what's on the last page. What God has promised will take place in the end. You see, all these days are but a path that take us to final rest and peace and salvation and glory. And all of the afflictions that Paul calls light and momentary, they cannot compare to that day. They just can't compare. You could write the best story you could come up with, and it doesn't compare to what God has in store for us. You could write the worst story you could come up with. You may feel like you're in the worst story that you could come up with. And yet nothing will stop the power of God from accomplishing that through your days. Nothing will. Job said it, didn't he? I know that you can do all things and none of your purposes can be thwarted. Nobody can throw you off track. It's also helpful to know when we pray about our lost family and friends, isn't it? Because their days are unfolding in such a way 
that their story has been a continual rejection of the gospel and of Jesus. And yet, isn't it true that your story was once dark and grim? Isn't it true that if you go back and you read it with fresh eyes, you would think there's no happy ending at the end of this? And yet, one glorious day, the page was turned, and at the top was a heading, Grace. And everything written after it came after grace. And who knows, in, the, in response to your praying and in your continual witnessing, who knows but that the page may turn very soon and at the top of that family member's page, at the top of that friend's page, who knows but that the page may not read grace. As I look around this room, I think about some who prayed for family members for decades, decades, and have seen them come to faith in Jesus. Wherever it is, wherever they are, whatever, whatever, however dark it is, grace can be on the next page. Do not give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up witnessing. God's power is over all our days from beginning to end. And then I want us to see David's response to God's power. This is in verses 17 to 24. The first response that we'll see is praise. Praise. Look at verse 14. I mean, as David contemplates God's creative power working in his mother's womb, shaping him, forming him, knitting him together, embroidering every unique piece of who he is, he responds in praise. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully, as I said, means awe-inspiring. That wonderful is the same idea we had earlier in the psalm of it's just beyond his comprehension. Now, did you know that there's a way to say I am fearfully and wonderfully made that actually just focuses on me? You see, if you pick up in the verse right there at the word I, and you say I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and you write it on your mirror, and you make it your ringtone on your phone, and uh, you get a billboard to remind you, hey, Toby, as you're on your way to work today, remember, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you just recite it to yourself over and over and over again because you want to feel good about yourself. Just know that that's not what David was doing. David's not giving himself a pep talk. David's not feeling a little blue, so he wants to give himself some nice words to hang on to. You know how I know that? Because he says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That for is a causal participle. It connects one phrase to another. He's just saying that the awe-inspiring nature of the body and the soul and the fact that it is beyond his comprehension draws something out of him. And that something is praise. I praise you because what you've done in creating me is beyond my comprehension. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And there, is a, there is a line there we must not cross. 
It is glorious in the sense that God's work is glorious. That's the next phrase. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So he praises the Lord. The second thing, the second response is delight. Look at verse 17 and 18. David finds delight in thinking about God's power over all his days. So he's talked about God's power from beginning to end. And then he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God's power is precious to him. He values it. He clings to it. He takes joy in it. He finds himself meditating on it. And a smile just instinctively comes across his face. He goes to sleep at night. He wakes up the next day, and there God is with the day ahead already written in his book. So that whatever day it happens to be, one that's expected or unexpected, David knows God, the omnipotent God, is at work. I mean, what if we woke up with that attitude every day? I wake up and there you are, God. Not I wake up and, well, there you are, God. No, I I awake and... I'm still with you. You're still writing days. You still have purposes. You have purpose for this day. I have no idea what this day holds, but you do. What if we delighted in that? What if we woke up knowing that nothing in this life, no distraction, no alteration of plans, no diagnosis, no cruelty from another person, no scheme of the devil can overpower God and get in without His express permission? There are no edits to the story that God has written for this day for each one of us. And even when all those things come in, what if we woke up knowing that when those things come in, it is not without the expressed purposes of God being worked out in our lives? How would that change your Monday tomorrow if that's how you woke up? How would you live differently? How would you respond to the unexpected and the tragic differently if you were to delight in this truth? He responds in praise. He responds in delight. And he responds in devotion. This is what we see in the last six verses. It's not simply a conclusion of verses 13 to 18. It really is a conclusion of the whole psalm. So David's laid out God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and now God's omnipotence. And this kind of God deserves our devotion. Look at how David begins this uh, devotion first with what could be very disturbing. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David is calling on God to work out his justice in the lives of the wicked. But do you know what else is there? His devotion is to love what God loves and hate what God hates. He wants to be separated from the wickedness that's around him. He says, O men of blood, depart from me. They're my enemies. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
I want to be separate from those who separate themselves from God, he says. Keep me away. Keep me free of their influence. Keep me free of it, Lord. But do you know what he does next? He looks in the mirror. First, he looks out the window at the world. And now he looks in the mirror at himself. And he sees his own heart and he sees the wickedness that I see out there can so easily creep up unnoticed in here. And so he prays, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I just want you to think about those two sets of verses for just a second. This notion of, uh, of de- the devotion of David. Verses 19 to 20. God, please do something about all of their wickedness. Verses 23 to 24. Oh God, please do something about my wickedness. I wonder if you would agree with me that it seems a lot more natural and it's more easily done to pray like verses 19 to 22 than it is to pray like verses 23 to 24. That it's a lot easier to pray about all the sin and the culture out there, the wickedness in the church over there, what's wrong with other people, It's a lot easier to do that, isn't it? Than it is to say, look at all the wickedness in here. Look at the sin in here. I mean, we tend to see and be concerned about the wickedness in others, their words, their actions, far more than we are concerned in the wickedness in us. Our thoughts, our words our actions. This is why Jesus asked such a pointed question in Matthew 7, isn't it? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's a relevant question here. David makes the shift. He sees what's going on out there, and in some way, that prompts him to think, I am, not, I am more like those wicked people than I am not like them. And yet, Jesus asks a question. Why does he ask that question? Well, because quite frankly, we can't answer it except to say that we are proud and sinful. And we're a whole lot more interested in other people being wrong than me being wrong. If you don't believe me, just be a fly on the wall the next time a marital spat comes about. The spouses aren't going, no, 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 you're right, I'm wrong. No, 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 you're right, I'm wrong. This is not what's happening. Somebody's going to get checkmate here. Why? Do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's a relevant question for David. It's a relevant question for us, is it not? God will not bless us prioritizing and focusing on the specks of others. 
He blesses our prioritizing and searching out and removing the log in our own eye. He won't bless that attitude in our personal lives, in our work lives, in our married lives, in our friendships and friends. He simply won't bless it in our church either. I want you to consider the content of your conversations with friends recently, with other church members. Maybe as you've wandered through the foyer, maybe as you're chatting over dinner together, and you're talking. Maybe it's as you're at home and you're talking about your spouse. I wonder how much time you spent shaking your head in disapproval of others. It could be because of some sin you think you see. It could just be because you don't happen to like what that person's doing. Maybe it's a disapproval of other church members. Maybe, quite frankly, you're just not very pleased with some decision or another that elders have made or that deacons are doing this or that. Or I just can't believe my leaders are doing whatever it is that they're doing. I wonder how much time you spend in conversation with other people talking about those things. I wonder how much time we've spent grumbling, complaining, even gossiping about something that we don't approve of. And then let's ask this question. I wonder when it was the last time that you were talking with one of these same Christian friends and you confessed your sin to that person and said, this is what I'm struggling with. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? Will you walk with me? When was the last time your heart was so broken over the log in your own eye that you couldn't even squint hard enough to make out the speck in another? Friends, we get so engulfed in the faults of others that we are blind to our own sin. We can be so convinced that this thing or that thing or the other that we disapprove of, uh, an action, a decision, a direction, whatever, is just, I just, no, it's not sinful, but I'm telling you what, I just wholeheartedly disapprove of it, and right? And we can all do that. But do you know what we often do? We run right over the fact that the da-da-da-da-da-da's are sinful grumbling and complaining. We're not seeking to solve a problem. It may may be a problem. It may not be a problem. We just indulge ourselves in our own sin and we make the log bigger and bigger in our own eyes and we can't see it. How tragic. I've sat with couples who've come to me and The man is convinced that if his wife would only change, the marriage would be a thousand times better. I've sat with couples where the wife said, if the husband would change, our marriage would be a thousand times better. And do you know what? They're both right. (laughs) But the one saying it can't see what's wrong in themselves. I've sat around with pastors who complain about their congregations. 
Well, they're just not doing this, and they're just not doing that, and they're just not doing... And I just, it's been a long time since I sat with a pastor of another church, and he said, well, I don't think I'm being very effective here or there. I think I've been kind of lazy. I think I'm not preaching with the same kind of passion I used to. I don't think I'm X, Y, Z. This knows no bounds. I wonder if you see it in you. I wonder if you're given more to talking about the problems of others and complaining about what you disapprove of than you do examining your own heart. I wonder if that would be true of you. Devotion to God says, search me, O God. I mean, do you really think that you're immune from this kind of thing? Do we think that we as a congregation are immune to this kind of thing? If we, if, if we convince ourselves of that, then we're doing the very thing that we ought not to do, right? Well, there are plenty of other churches that might be that way, but it could never happen here. We're not immune from it, friends. I can see. And I can hear the evidence of it. It is creeping in and it is rearing its devilish head. And friends, every single one of us needs to examine our hearts. And we must change. And we must change now. We can repeat all the phrases about being a church that glorifies God through exalting and equipping and encouraging and engaging, but we will not be a church that glorifies God if all we're concerned about is other people and not me. I find I need to examine my heart. I wonder if you do. We need to ask the Lord to search us and to know us and to expose us and to change us. I wonder if you would do that this morning. I wonder if you would seek the Lord today to change you. Not change those around you. Change me. Examine your whole life. Where may it have crept in? at work, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, in, in your life in the church. The good news is that those who pray that prayer and long for God to change them, God's power can change you. He can restore us and refresh us and renew us and revive us. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Which means that not only the non-Christian who goes to God and turns to Christ in faith will know the power of God to save, but we as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we turn back to Jesus, when we've wandered away from these things, He can change us. His power, His might, His strength can change us.
I'm going to ask Fran to come. And we're going to sing the power of the cross. And I wonder if you might be compelled to seek the Lord this morning, to search you, to expose you, to change you. That as we stand together to sing it, that you may do that standing, you may sit, you may kneel. While there is nothing particularly different about praying here at the front than there is praying anywhere else, if you want to pray here, that's fine. You want to pray with the person next to you? That's fine. But once we sing, I'll dismiss us. Because if you must repent, you need to. Or else you'll notice that your heart is a little bit harder the next time the call comes around. Would you stand and we're going to sing? And as we sing... Would you respond by seeking the Lord? Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the By sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, Christ became. Father, we are not our own. You have made us. 
By your will and your creative power, you have knit us together inside and out, body and soul. We are yours because we are your creation. And we are yours because the blood of your dear Son has purchased us. We have been bought with a price, and we are not our own. May we praise you for your power. May we delight in the fact that every day is written in your book. And that nothing that you have purposed for us in all those days can be thwarted. And make us devoted to you. Help us to not be those who see the wickedness of the world and simply write it off as a different way of living. Help us to not give silent acceptance to those things which stir your wrath. Help us to not do that when we think of the world around us and help us to not tolerate such things in ourselves. Help us to pray again and again, search me, O God, and try my heart. Test me, know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Bring to your people at Gray Road refreshment, renewal, restoration, revival. Stir in us a new passion for you, for your word, for the world that is lost without you, for holiness, for loving one another, for glorifying you in all of life. Keep us from resisting the teaching of your word. Keep us from being divisive. Make us eager, eager to promote the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Help us to see those things which matter most and give ourselves to them most. And help us, O Lord, to be like our precious Lord Jesus, who became a servant, who emptied himself, who counted himself as nothing, who emptied himself of all but love, and came and died for us. May that truth help us to count others as more important than ourselves, to not seek our own ways in all of life, in our workplace, in our marriages, 
in our friendships, in our parenting, and in this church. Oh God, make us marked off by the humility that marked our Savior. Do not let us walk out from the preaching of your word this day or any day without thinking and acting and being stirred to our souls in a new and fresh way. Make it so, Lord, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all these things. Amen.